one of the tenets of the decentralized web is that every layer of the stack could be decentralized. Let's take the layer of identity. Every time you and I log on to Facebook or Google or I don't know how many logons you have. I have about 327. <laughs> Why is it that I am handing my information to those companies? Why can't I hold on to my own self-sovereign identity and show them only what I want to show them, what they need to know? Hi, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people that are impacting the new digital world to where we all work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking and boutique consulting services. And if you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. So one of the fantastic things that I love about hosting this podcast is the chance to really meet people I just wouldn't get into contact with normally. And that was the case on today's episode. I had a wonderful and inspiring and thought-provoking conversation with Wendy Hanamura. Wendy is the event producer for the D-Web Camp, which is the decentralized web camp that recently took place in beautiful farmland not far from San Francisco, and a whole bunch of what they call dreamers and builders and coders and data architects and thinkers and philosophers of the web from around the world meet on this beautiful spot just above the Pacific Ocean. And I interviewed Wendy as people were arriving. She'd got her own tent set up and she was ready for an extraordinary and remarkable few days with a group of people who are really visionaries trying to reimagine the internet for the decades to come. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be talking to Wendy Hanamura. Uh, Wendy is the D-Web Camp event producer and I'll just read what I kind of know about the D-Web Camp. It's a four-day retreat that's just about to start. It's for dreamers and builders. It takes place in a farm nestled just above the Pacific Ocean. And it's for those people who want to create a web that is more open, private, secure, and fun. It's, it's fantastic that you've been able to spare a little bit of time before the the four-day retreat of D-Web Camp starts. So just just give us a picture of where you are. Well, imagine this. We are right on the coast of California, part of the coast they call the slow coast, very remote, very little Internet connectivity, and relatively untouched. We're on a 700-acre farm that was once one of the largest farms in this area, but has been out of use for quite a while and is being turned into a retreat center, especially for the leaders of Silicon Valley, who the event leaves are desperately in need of a place they can connect to themselves, to their communities, and especially to nature. We're here setting up like mad, you know, right in the same room, Right. That connectivity 
is setting a mess network across the hundred part of the farm. We have people who have come in from Brazil, from Tanzania, from Lebanon, from South Africa. We're very different. Some of us are founders of companies. Some of us are mesh networkers. Some of us are community activists. But the thread that connects all of us, I believe, is that we all believe that there is a better web, a web that serves our own needs in a way that the current web is not. I think we've come to see in this last year that the web that we rely on has started to fail us. It's not private. It's not secure. It is uh, often co-opted. Our data is used. There are so many things that I think are not the way the original creators of the web would have it. Mm. Yeah, and it's 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 so interesting. I mean, um, in in the UK yesterday, there was a new uh, banknote um, uh, issued, a fifty pound note, and on it they put uh, everybody was waiting to hear who they're going to put on the banknote, and they put Alan Turing, who is is seen to be one of the inventors of the early stages of the web and was involved with. Um, uh, Bletchley Park, which was critical during the the code breaking of the Second World War, and 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 in a way, I I, I wonder what he was kind of envisaging when when he was doing his work, which was in if you like at that time was in 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 public service, and and as you say, you know if you think of the 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 web that Tim Berners Lee was envisaging, and 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 the early kind of pioneers of of the internet. I mean, what I find kind of fascinating is that you've chosen to have the D-Web camp, this, this, this movement around the decentralized web uh, in nature. What's, what's the, what's the and, and by the way, apologies to anybody if there is a little bit of a, a connectivity issue, because Wendy has decided to have the event in, in a very uh, open, natural environment where maybe the connectivity is not as good. Um, but what made you choose that? Many things, Paul. You know, Most of the world is not connected to the Internet. They live in places where there is no Internet or the Internet there is is very expensive. Many people live behind a wall of censorship. And these decentralized web tools are perfect for people who live off the grid in that way. If you live behind the Great Wall of China um, and you cannot get, for instance, the media that lives on the Internet Archive, where I work, if this were in a decentralized web where the storage of that media would be not just in one place, not just in one URL, but in many, many places, it becomes much harder to censor that kind of content. So, you know, they like to say in Silicon Valley, you should eat your own dog food. So we came to a place where... It is a bit off the grid where we have to experience what it's like for much of the world. And we came to test our tools. Could we use our tools offline in a way that could really serve humanity? That's such a fantastic way of of expressing it. And, And once you kind of describe that to me, it makes absolute sense. So what you're saying is actually this is what the web is like for an awful lot of people on our planet and and i i i think Absolutely. I, I, I think and what yeah, can we do for so them mm, yeah and you and you and and what also sounds amazing and you kind of went through it a little bit is is the decentralized web seems not just to attract a if you like a technical 
crowd of people. It sounds like it's a really diverse uh, range of people. And why is that? Because in the decentralized web, there are many winners. It's not power concentrated in the hands of a few major corporations or major platforms. So one of the tenets of the decentralized web is that every layer of the stack could be decentralized. Let's take the layer of identity. Every time you and I log on to Facebook or Google or I don't know how many logons you have. I have about 327. <laughs> Why is it that I am handing my information to those companies? Why can't I hold on to my own self-sovereign identity and show them only what I want to show them, what they need to know? I mean, after all, when we go into a bar, uh, we don't give them our driver's license to hold we show them, they look at the date, they make sure that we're over the age of 21 or legal drinking age, and they give it back to us. That's what self-sovereign identity could be like. So we have a lot of folks from Holocom in Berlin, from Newport uh, Consensus. We have folks from the um, International Identity Workshop, all working on how we could maintain control over our own identity as we surf the web. That's one little piece of the vision of what a decentralized web could be like. Right. And, I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of um, uh, so the ideas of, say, Will I Am and his ideas around digital identity, uh, Jaron Lanier, um, um, you know, that, that, that actually, once you think about it, you know, we, we, we take all of our digital assets, and as you just put it so beautifully, Wendy, we, we just hand them over, uh, whereas actually they're part of what we own. And, and, and I think in the kind of picture you're painting, um, we kind of retain control. I mean, what I'm thinking is, if that was where the web started, kind of what, what happened? What, what went wrong? Well, let's think about the early web. I don't know. Did you ever dabble with GeoCities? It was once yeah. one of the great creative communities online. You, you could build your own block. You could build your own house. You know, you could have your own GeoCities location. And people poured their hearts into their, their um, sites, right? They built whole blocks and whole cities around specific interests. Well, eventually, that GeoCities was sold to Yahoo for, I think it was $5 billion. And after about five years, they realized they couldn't figure out a way to monetize that, and they shut it down. So all of the media, all of the creativity that people had poured into their GeoCities site essentially would have gone away. Now, the Internet Archive swooped in, and we tried to archive as much of it as we could. But much of it did pass, pass into the ether, uh, disappeared. That was because all of those assets lived on the servers of Yahoo. What if they lived in our own servers, or your server, my server, every, every place that would be a storage node in a decentralized web? When GeoCities went down, that would mean that it would be much more likely that the, the media would persist in some way. Now, 
this is not without problems, of course, because um, takedown issues, hate speech, media that lives in many different locations is much harder to manage than centralized servers. But it also holds out great possibilities, possibilities for preservation, for instance. Um, we've been so lucky to have Tim, Tim Berners-Lee uh, come to our decentralized web events in 2016 and 2018. And the web that he envisioned and built was beautiful and simple. But uh, people have noted that it didn't have a time access. access. There was no way to preserve old websites. So essentially, Brewster Kale of the Internet Archive built kind of a hack on that. He built the Wayback Machine that would capture things as much as possible. But in a decentralized web, you could build a time access so that every time something changed was mutable, you could hash that, you could capture that and save that. Mm. That's one of the outsized possibilities of this new decentralized vision. Fantastic. And so, so tell me, give, what, what is it that, that everybody will be doing um, during the, the, the D-Web camp and the, the four-day retreat? And I love the fact you express it as a retreat. It's not a workshop. It's not a hackathon. It's a retreat. We have a decentralized kind of co-creation model in mind. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> Across this farm, we have seven different venues. There's the Dome of Decentralization, which is a wonderful conversation space where open space conversation will be curated and convened. There's a hacking space called the Mesh Hall with good connectivity and tables and places where you can work on tools together. There's the Hyper Lounge where we're holding a science fair where you could show off the latest gizmos that you've been working on, the latest uh, breakthroughs that you've made. There's the Wayback Wheel tent where you can do great activations. Um, for instance, uh, we're talking about doing something called the Global Cafe where different groups perhaps um, are representative from the conservation school in Tanzania or the coder who's building out mesh networks and tools for his village in Brazil, they can come and say, this is what I need. What do you have that could solve my needs? And the coders and the engineers and the artists and the designers would come to their aid. And then, you know, you would set out a different problem. We have uh, a grow room for art installations where um, a wonderful, wonderful installation about privacy by an activist artist is going in. You can imagine seven different venues, each with its own focus and energy, um, with different people meeting in each one. We believe that real, real knowledge gets transferred and, and education happens when you're about one on ten. So we're trying to create happening in which 30 different things, 35 different things might be happening at once. Wow, it sounds it's it sounds it sounds amazing and is is there a particular uh, sort of age of people who tend to come? They range from the founders of the core technologies. Um Mitchell Baker, the founder of Mozilla will be there. To the youngest coders, we have a 14-year-old prodigy from Phoenix uh, who's homeschooled, who, according to everyone, is one of the, the 
great up-and-coming coders of our time. So from 14-year-old to founders of original major major organizations on the web, that's what we think we'll, we'll, we'll be seeing. What's the kind of um, hope with the way the, the decentralized web movement will, can grow? I mean, at the moment, it feels like in the last two years, we've sort of woken up, maybe it's three years, we've, we've sort of woken up to, to what um, Shuzhana Zuboff in Surveillance Capitalism would, would call the, the sort of takeover that's happened. So, so we, we've, we've had these huge technological entities that, that have kind of, if, if you like, sort of sucked the web up and sucked our data up. And I think if you, ex if you talk to most people and you say, would you like to keep control of your own assets physically, they go, well, yes. Do you want to keep control of your own digital assets? Well, yes. Can I? And, and so I think there's a real appetite for something different. How, how might that kind of manifest itself? I think this is a watershed moment, Paul. You have, as you mentioned, this burgeoning awareness that we have given away our privacy. We've given away the keys to the vault. And we've done that rather willingly by just checking all of those consents all the time. What would a new world on the online look like? So you have people realizing they want something different. They want something better. At the same time, you have an upswell in blockchain technology. Now, blockchain is not at all synonymous with the decentralized web, but it is related and adjacent and a part of the decentralized web. So what happened with that, with blockchain taking off, is that um, what started as kind of a small, grassroots, underfunded, open source world of coders, where the great danger was there would never be enough resources for it to scale, suddenly all of these groups they can do an ICO. They can raise millions of dollars without going to venture capitalists. They can get capital to hire hun over 100 um, engineers to build these decentralized protocols. So you're starting to see massive scaling up. What is the killer decentralized app going to be? Well, we're starting to see decentralized versions of YouTube, decentralized Reddit, decentralized Slack, decentralized Twitter. One of these is going to be the breakthrough app because people are going to realize I can have all of the benefits of Reddit, but in a decentralized, better version where it's not controlled by a company, it's controlled by me. If you had all the performance, all the attributes of those tools that you use all the time and the tacit agreement is okay you can have all my media you can know where i'm going you can have my identity if you could have the functionality and still have self-sovereign control wouldn't you go for that i think that is that is what we envision now these are early days though i think we first decided to call this the decentralized web in 2016 so we're only at the very, very beginning of things, but it's exciting. And it's exciting because we have people coming from all over the world who are not necessarily technologists. They are sometimes people who represent communities that are offline, 
saying, these are the tools I need. And the great Emily Jacoby of Digital Democracy said, tools always reflect the values of their makers. And we will build better tools if we sit in community at the same table as the people who are going to use them. So that is part of why we're on this farm. You know, imagine washing dishes together and chopping vegetables and, you know, doing all the things that campers do. Uh, And one person on one side is a founder of one of these great decentralized protocols. And on the other side uh, is somebody from uh, a village in Brazil. And, And across from you is the founder of a conservation school in Tanzania, all in need of the same things. We all need a web that serves us, a web that we deserve, the web that we want. We have the tools. We have the resources. And I do believe that we are on a path to build that better web. Mm. And that was a beautiful question that you you posed. What would a new world look like? What, What could a new world online look like. And it's interesting, I mean, um, Susanna Zuboff and this extraordinary book, Surveillance Capital, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, says, you know, and, and Jaron Lanier says, it, it, it's not too late. Um, and and actually, to me, it feels like, you know, and we've already seen people leaving Facebook quite a bit, and it's almost like, People are still there. People are still on the the platforms only because there isn't a sort of what what what's yet perceived to be a viable kind of alternative. Um, um, what what? I, so I'm one of the things I'm wondering is what does this mean for the world of work? And one of the interesting things that um, I've seen in the in the working world is, I mean, the large organisations have been some of them have been adopting. Facebook within the workplace. There's a product called Workplace, which is run by Facebook. And it's got great functionality. It does good things. But then people also have a kind of aversion to getting their, their if you like, all of their employees and, and workforce on onto what they perceive to be a, you know, a, a platform with a particular kind of, uh, people have got an opinion about it, shall we say. So what we're actually seeing is is some specific enterprise apps being created that almost have some of the maybe these some of these characteristics of of a decentralized app that then they're they're kind of hybrids they're almost organizations saying look we want to get that functionality but we don't want to get it in this way and i do i wonder whether some of the um the 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 decentralized web apps and services that are being created are, are they going to be useful for organizations um, as well, do you think? Absolutely. Let me give you a few examples that are already out there in the working world. Um, There is a decentralized messaging system called Matrix. And the government of France has adopted Matrix as its communication um, mode. So Instead of Slack, uh, they use Matrix throughout all government entities in France. There's something called Patchwork, which runs on the Scuttlebutt protocol. Now, Patchwork is very much like Facebook, but instead of everything you post going back to Facebook servers, each of us runs 
part of, of a, a node in a way. So, you know, we're using the excess compute power in our own computers to, to fuel this. And so you have serverless communication across patchwork in a very Facebook-like way, but without the control of a Facebook, already in use. Matrix has 5 million users. There are smaller things, PurePad, um, other types of YouTube alternatives. We haven't seen, I think, the killer app quite yet, but there's lots and lots of things in the pipeline. Mm. And, and and is there a, um, uh, a killer app? Because one of the things that I... Um, somebody's like, you know, was explaining the whole... Um, idea of uh, shared protocols, open protocols, and, you know, and, and talking about GPS. So no, nobody, as far as I understand it, owns GPS. So every time we use GPS, um, you know, it's not like somebody monetizes that. And is, is your kind of picture that is that the, the, if you like, there wouldn't be these huge aggregations of wealth within a, sm- a small concentration but that the if you like the ownership and the um the economies around it would be decentralized that's right um almost all of these protocols are open source so that means they're contributed to uh and built by a community of people and if the community gets disaffected with the leaders of that community, they can just fork their code and create an offshoot, governance by forking, they call that. So you have to govern your project in a way that keeps these open source contributors happy. That has a profound impact in the way most of these organizations are being configured. I mean, one of the things that I'm uh, just wanted to ask you is, is this, and I'll call it a movement, is this movement centered um, in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area? Is, or are there kind of different, if you like, centers of gravity for this movement around the world? There are different centers of gravity by all means. One of the things that we're doing here this week is we're building a landing page so that the D-Web meetup group from Toronto, the one from San Francisco, the one from Berlin, will all be on the same landing page. We are hoping to add some communities as well. Uh, another project by Christina Bowen is mapping the entire space using this great tool called Kumu Mapping. You know, it's so new, Paul, that no one really knows the edges and boundaries of where this decentralized world is. But we're trying to quantify it, and we're trying to build connections, human connections and technological connections between the hubs in these different places. Mm. So, and, and, you know, to quote the jargon of the technology world, um, and I'm not saying this, this that it should be doing this or not, but is this a... Is, is part of this does part of this get monetized and how does that happen is that or is that not part of the if you like the ethos of this oh it has to be monetized because only when there's resources do you have enough capital to hire the engineers to build it to market it to perfect it 
so you see lots of different business models, um, some wildly, wildly revolutionary, like the Handshake.org folks, who have built a blockchain-based new DNS system where they're taking the proceeds and distributing it to open source coders primarily. So instead of having most of the revenue go back to investors, they're going to the people who are actually building the open source code around the world. And I think they have a clause in their um, foundational documents that say if they hit a valuation of $500 billion by five years, that they'll try and give some amount of tokens to every single person on earth. So the founders of this organization are busy, you know, they believe this could happen. So they're busy thinking, how would I do that? How would I give everyone on earth uh, some of these tokens? Many of these decentralized web organizations like Protocol Labs have been able to offer ICOs, initial coin offerings that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in capital that they're pouring back into building the protocols. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and so it's a kind of decentralized monetization, really. Instead of going to venture capitalists um, in the first round and in the growth round, you can go directly to people. You can mm. and I suppose we... a coin offering and get, get money directly. Yeah, and I suppose, um, uh, you know, if if we kind of uh, look at this, it, the, you know, the crowdfunding model, um, that that way of, of, of creating and gathering resources together is, is, you know, has been a powerful movement in the last um, five or six years. I mean, um, one of the things that um, strikes me about what you're saying um, is that it, it feels like a, a sort of... Uh, a, a kind of project, if I can call it that, that, that's part of a social change agenda that we can see happening around climate change, uh, community rebuilding, um, issues of income inequality. You know, the, the, there's, there's actually a whole raft of um, uh, kind of initiatives happening around the world which are only somewhat loosely, con- they're kind of connected, but not, str- you know, they're not part of a hierarchy. Would, would, would that sort of, it sounds like that would ring true for you. I think that's right. I think the thread that connects to all of us is that we realize that our relationship to technology is not what it could be. We, we need a reboot. We need to build a set of protocols, a relationship to our technology that has a different value system. Mm. So that's why you have someone coming like uh, Tristan Harris and Aza Raskin of the Center for Humane Technology who have articulated so well that these platforms that we use were built to addict us, that we have downgraded our human lives by using these technologies and that we need to have a reboot. We need to have a, uh, a different set of design principles going forward. Now, they are not decentralized web technologists, but they see in this beginning of something new, what could be a whole new web, um, opportunities to plant a different kind of value system in the minds of, of the code writers. Yeah, and I think that that for 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 the uh, large organisations and smaller organisations thinking about this, is that this this concept of an ethical 
workplace, an ethical, physical, and digital workplace that you're trying to create for your for your employees, for your staff, contractors, suppliers, etc. Um, that this concept of the decentralized web, and you had some great examples of the different applications um, that are being used, and I love the example of the French government and 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 Matrix, and I think it's actually. It's because I noticed you emphasize the word uh, uh, secure. So it's private and secure. And you're actually, in a way, if you like, accusing the the larger web of being not secure. And we kind of see that. Um, I suppose I'm kind of thinking. So if if you're listening uh, to this in the higher reaches of Google and Facebook, um, there's kind of a lot of power there. And and this is a threat to that power, isn't it? Well, I think one of the major topics of conversation here this week will be Facebook's move into the blockchain world. They're going to issue their own coin, their own token, Libra. You you might never need a bank again. You would just do all transactions within your Facebook portal. It's it's a it's a currency that would have immediate global reach in places where it's so expensive to transfer money, where there's so many people who are unbanked. Think of the potential of Libra with a base of people in the billions already using Facebook. Now, this is a decentralized uh, cryptocurrency that is going to be created and used and harnessed by one of the most centralized and centralizing forces of them all, Facebook. So there's early days, and there's no guarantee that we won't succumb to the very same market forces that have taken what Tim Berners-Lee created and turned it into this web that we're using now. But the hope is, the potential is, that there could be a web with many winners, not just a few winners. Hmm. Now, that's fantastic. And so um, one of the questions I, I love to end uh, on, Wendy, is, is, and I'd like to ask that of you. So what, what does a perfect working day look like for you? What's, what's happening on a, on a perfect working day? Well, I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my day today. I woke up as the sun rose on my tent. That was about 5.50 a.m., And I got up and I went and I sat with an amazing group of people. Nico Pace, who runs Alter Mundi from Argentina. Luanjo Vieira from Brazil, who is a technologist who put his whole village of 200 people online using mesh networks. Merlin Van Lawick, who is the head of the Pugu Educational Center, the grandson of, of Jane Goodall. And we walked to the beach and talked about what these technologies could mean for them in each of those locations. What uh, an inspiring morning. Then we came back and we set to work. So I, I started to write blogs and push out schedules and do all of the kinds of online things that one does. Uh, and we have people painting, we have people cooking, we have people moving signs, all anticipating the close to 400 people that will descend here in just a day or two. It's exciting. It's beautiful. It's in nature. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost like 
the sensation of having your dreams come true before your eyes. I've been working on this project now for quite a while, many, many, many months. And to have it so close that I could taste it is quite a delicious thing. Oh, that's that's so that's that's absolutely wonderful, and that's only part of your day. I mean, I was completely there, walking down to the beach with you. That was that was uh, that is very very beautiful, Wendy. Um, well, congratulations on all you've done, and thank you so much for um, for joining the podcast today. I hope people will check us out at dwebcamp.org because over time we'll post videos. We'll try and put up there as much as we can archive of the happenings that are, are going to transpire. But so much of it will have fall in conversation around campfires that I don't think we're going to capture it. We won't know for many, many years what the true outcomes and impacts are of D-WebCamp. But I have a feeling they'll be quite profound. Yeah, I think so. Well, thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash DWG underscore score podcast. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.